This is episode number 13 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. Yes, he is. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California. We're distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. And this is the brand new bi-weekly program, which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because let's face it, unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the full and complete truth about him. The liberal mainstream media has uh, completely lost their mind. They cannot be objective, and the uh, so-called conservative, I refer to them now as the state-run media, has been compromised and completely co-opted. We, however, at the Individual One Podcast, as I like to say, have most definitely not been co-opted. We hope you've enjoyed the uh, first 12 episodes of the program. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. And please join our over 11,000 Twitter followers at our handle, Individual One Pod. That's the in, that's individual, the number one pod, Individual One Pod. Lots to get to on this edition of the Individual One Podcast. We start off with a story that really doesn't have that much directly to do with Donald Trump, although tangentially it does, of course, and that was the massacre that occurred in New Zealand when a apparent white... I don't, do, I don't even know what to call him, but uh, you know, a, a white guy on videotape essentially live-streamed his massacre at a Muslim mosque, resulting in uh, enormous death and destruction. Uh, it appears at least 49 people have been killed, many others injured. Obviously a horrendous, horrific event. And uh, my, my first thought about this in relation to Trump is – This goes to one of the things that doesn't get enough attention about how incredibly lucky we have been so far in the Trump era. And and what I mean by that is that we in in the United States of America have yet to face a massive crisis of that kind of proportion. We saw a mini version of this when it came to the, uh, the, the riots in Charlottesville, Virginia, a couple of years ago. And Trump butchered that one horrendously. Can you imagine if this had occurred in America, where a, a white guy uh, seemingly, and I, I make sure we underline the word seemingly, because I, I never trust what it is that a mass murderer is trying to portray as his beliefs, because uh, he can always be creating a situation where he's trying to fool people. So I, I don't. I'm not going to say his name. I'm not going to speculate as to what he really believed and didn't believe. But if you duplicate these kind of circumstances in the United States of America with that kind of death and destruction on Muslims by a white guy with any sign at all that he had uh, pro-Trump leanings, then uh, Trump would would cause this situation, which would be obviously already combustible, to explode. Uh, th- there seems to be very little doubt about that. Correct. Uh, and that's, that, to me, is um, where we have been incredibly lucky so far in the United States of America, where we have not faced what I would consider to be a really true major crisis since Trump became president a little over two years ago. And... Uh, 
he is unique. I've always said he's uniquely unqualified to be president for many reasons, one of which is he's uniquely unqualified to handle a crisis of this type, especially specifically this kind, because he doesn't care about anything other than himself and his own well-being and placating his own political base. That's the kind of situation where you cannot be doing that. That's the opposite of what you should be doing. Now, thankfully, again, we were lucky that this didn't happen here. That doesn't mean it's not a horrendous human disaster just because it happened in New Zealand. It just means that he's not directly, obviously, in charge, and his comments aren't nearly as significant as they would be if this had occurred in the United States of America. There is the one other element of this story that seems incredibly minor, but I think symbolically is is rather significant when it comes to where we're heading with Donald Trump, especially into an election year in 2020. And that is that for about 24 hours or so, not long after this massacre in New Zealand, Chelsea Clinton, of all people, was the top trending item on Twitter. And the reason why that happened was because she went to a prayer service on behalf of the the Muslims who had been massacred here, and she got berated, berated publicly by uh, some of the people that were there. Why? Because she had had the gall to uh, criticize anti-Semitic remarks before this had happened. And somehow in the deranged mindset of the people who were there, this, I guess, made her somehow culpable or somehow sympathetic because she was anti-anti-Semitism, which I guess somehow made her on the side of the of the mass murderer? What? What? Seriously? I mean, are we, are we, that can't, I was looking at this going, this cannot be real. It's just flat out ridiculous. And it's so bizarre that coming to her defense were conservatives in general and Donald Trump Jr. in particular. I mean, when Donald Trump Jr. is going on Twitter and defending Chelsea Clinton, you know we're in bizarro world. And that's where we are. And the reason why this is significant is because I think it's emblematic of what I have said is my greatest fear heading into the 2020 election. And that is that liberals in general, and I don't want to overblow this, and, and it's more symbolic than anything else, but that liberals in general have so lost their minds in reaction to Donald Trump and the Donald Trump era and everything that's brought with it, that they're going to scare the living daylights out of people to the point where they're not going to be trusted with power. Uh, We've seen that with the takeover of the House of Representatives and some of the priorities and the focus on on some of the far left elements of the Democratic Party taking control. And uh, and I certainly think that this is is symbolic of that larger reality where, where Democrats cannot go down this path. If they go down this path, they're gonna get Donald Trump reelected. All they have to do to win the presidency back in 2020 and and try to rid the country and the world of what I referred to as a cancerous element, which is the Donald Trump presidency. All they have to do is maintain 
a basic level of reasonability. Just keep hold of your faculties. Just show that you've not gone completely bat crap crazy. And I'm not sure they're going to be able to do that. I'm not sure they're going to be able to do that through this Democratic primary process. They've got a lot of different kinds of candidates. They're already showing signs that they're not going to be able to hold it together. I mean, we've got white can- white male candidates already on the Democratic side who are apologizing for being white males. And I'm not exaggerating. I'm not making it up. It's just flat out ridiculous. I mean, when, when that, that, is, that is a recipe, a recipe for Donald Trump to be reelected. When you are apologizing for something, first of all, you have nothing to do with. <laughs> you have no control over whether you were born as a white male. But when you are effectively apologizing, if not directly apologizing for being a white male, you are playing directly into the hands of Donald Trump. Correct. And, uh, and so they do this at their own peril. And the reaction to the New Zealand massacre, I think, was emblematic of that. Now, politically, the biggest story of the last couple of days has been by far. And frankly, in some ways, I think this is the most underrated political story of the year, if not the entire Trump presidency. I said underrated. And what I'm referring to is that Donald Trump has issued his first veto. And for those who aren't aware, the veto is over the attempt by Congress, which passed, to terminate his national emergency that Trump declared on the border in an effort to get around Congress to get money to build his wall that's never going to actually be built. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that yeah, wall. Yeah, yeah, right. Whatever. Build that wall. Yeah, that's, that's never going to happen. And I've always said it's never going to happen, but he promised it so many times he has to pretend like it's going to happen because his, his cult is dumb enough to believe that it's actually, they, they think it's already happening. That's how dumb they are. Correct. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. I love the poorly educated. <laughs> so this is all a scam. This is all a sham. Uh, it's all uh, contrived to placate the Colt 45 Trump uh, cult. Um, but it's far, far more serious than that. Because this was the first time that Republicans in the Senate especially uh, have in any significant way rebuked Trump. So here's what happened. Trump I- issues that uh, bogus national emergency. And b- to be clear, I'm in favor of a wall. Just not at this price, both constitutionally and economically and politically. So, um, but so effectively, Trump declares the national emergency. Congress, in the first in the House and then in the Senate, decides, you know what, this is um, an abuse of power, although I don't think they use those words, but this is, this is exceeding the president's authority. And so we're going to terminate that uh, national emergency. So it cleared in the House because Democrats controlled the House. And then to some people's surprise, it ended up passing the Senate fairly easily because 12 Republican senators ended up voting against Trump on this. Now, it's interesting to note of the 12 senators who voted against Trump, not one of them is likely to face a uh, tough reelection bid the rest of their careers. And, And that's not a coincidence. And several senators... Uh, including some who have said that they were going to vote against Trump on this, ended up voting for him largely because they are going to be facing re-election.
And it's just pathetic. It's really just pathetic. I, I've never understood this. I get that power and position and stature is intoxicating. But a lot of these people are established in life. They've got enough money. They've got enough fame. I mean, if, if you end up losing your, your Senate seat over something like this, so what? I, I, and this goes to so many elements of life that I'm, I'm just completely at a loss to understand because it's never been part of the way that my DNA is set up and my mindset is, has been created. I just don't get it. I mean, look, no one wants to um, harm themselves. That's not the, the ideal human position. Most humans don't care enough about principle to ever do something like that. But, but when you have so much in life, risking a little bit of it, is, is that really too much to ask? Seriously? Is that too much to ask? I mean, you're a U.S. senator. You know, the, the whole system was based by our founding fathers on the idea that some people would stand up to principle. It was also based on the idea, I think, that we would never have someone like Trump as president. But we're seeing the entire system now feel a lot of stress because the founders never anticipated a lot of things that would transpire, including abject cowardice by most members of the U.S. Senate. The Senate, which is you, you get six years as your term, I mean, these are supposed to be people who are already established in life. The founders thought that this would be the last bastion of principle and courage in the U.S. Senate. And yet only 12 Republican senators did something that was obviously the right thing based upon their view of a conservative interpretation of the U.S. Constitution. This was an obvious attempt to get around Congress. It could not be more clear. I mean, it's more clear than anything just simply by the fact that it took Trump over two years to declare this emergency. It's not an emergency if you have to wait over two years and nothing happened in between. And so, uh, you know, some of the most pathetic senators were people like Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz is, in my, in my view, the most fraudulent of all the people who voted on Trump's side on this. Ted Cruz, his whole brand is, you know, he's the constitutional conservative. He's the guy who filibustered, uh, you know, to shut down the government because he thought, uh, you know, the, the government was growing too much in size. Uh, you know, he's the guy who was thought of as a potential down the road to Supreme Court justice. And he just won re-election. He doesn't face the voters again for over five years, which is a freaking eternity. And here, Ted Cruz, and this is how utterly pathetic it got. It's been reported that Cruz actually asked the Trump administration for a constitutional uh, validation of the position to vote in favor of him. In other words, he just said, hey, can you send me a memo making the constitutional case for voting on the president's side here? And apparently the White House just blew him off. Just said, yeah, go F yourself. Yeah, yeah we're not even going to send that to you. Good luck, Ted. And what does Ted Cruz do? He still votes for Trump. This is a guy who, who betrays his entire brand, his entire alleged group of principles for a man who during the 2016 campaign he called correctly a pathological liar and all sorts of other names and a man who insulted his own wife 
by retweeting a horrible picture of her in comparison to his own wife, who called him Lion Ted. I mean, does Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz must have absolutely no respect for himself whatsoever. Correct. I mean, it, it's just, it's sad. It is sad. And I've never liked Ted Cruz. I always felt that he was a phony, a grandstander, someone who thinks he's the smartest guy in the room and he really isn't. Uh, and so I'm almost a little bit, I'm almost rooting for Trump a little bit in that battle with Ted Cruz. Just to, I mean, thank you, sir. May I have another? And uh, so Cruz voted with the president. 12 Republicans in the Senate did not. So it passed fairly easily, but it did not pass with enough votes to override a veto. So so the House passes the termination of the national emergency. The Senate passes the termination of the national emergency. It goes to Trump's desk and he vetoes it. The first time he has vetoed anything in his presidency. Now, what bothers me here is that it is being uh, pretended by even some Trump skeptical media people that this veto is remotely normal. It is not normal. All right. This is not in the realm of what the veto power was supposed to be. In fact, it was probably the, the, the ultimate example that I can think of of exactly what the veto power was not supposed to be. If there was a veto that begs to be overridden purely on principle, forget about the wall, forget about the funding, forget about even the, the nature of the national emergency. If there was a veto that should be overridden purely on the basis of Congress defending its own turf, this is it. Because veto was supposed to be a situation where the president of the United States, because he was elected by the entire nation and is the only person that, that can say that, has decided that, you know what, he disagrees with what Congress has done. It should, it's supposed to be over some sort of a policy issue, uh, you know, the, the, where the president just disagrees with what Congress wants to do. And so he vetoes it. And then in order to override his veto, they need a two-thirds vote. Now, getting two-thirds under any circumstance is very difficult. But in the, the current incredibly balkanized and fragmented world in which we now live, it's, it's essentially impossible. And I think Trump knows this. But at the very least, if you're not going to override the veto, are there no Republicans who are going to be willing to say, hold on, this is not a normal veto over a policy matter. This is Donald Trump vetoing a bill passed by Congress that was directly intended to curtail his abuse of power. So he's effectively vetoing the effort to rein in his abuse of power. That's not what a veto is supposed to be about. And on those terms alone, the veto should be overridden. But it won't be. And the most uh, infuriating element of this is, based upon the way the rules are, Unless the House somehow gets two-thirds vote, which is not going to happen in all likelihood, because if it ever came close, Trump would start tweeting at some of these cowardly Republican Congress people who have to face re-election in a little over a year and a half, and they would cave. So 
because you, you need you know a lot of Republicans to get two-thirds of the vote. Well, if the, they don't get two-thirds in the House, then the Senate doesn't even have to re-vote. So you don't even have to put these people on, on the... Uh, you know, on the spot, Ted Cruz, who should be the first. Can you imagine if this was Obama who who had declared a national emergency to get around Congress? Congress passes a termination of that national emergency and then he vetoes it. My gosh, Fox News Channel would be on 24 seven alert talk radio the same Sean Hannity would be uh, setting himself on fire in front of the White House. All the other bogus, uh, Mark Levin, oh my gosh, Mark Levin, the biggest hypocrite in the history of the world. His head would explode. His voice would be screeching so loud only dogs could hear it. I mean, this would be the biggest thing that's ever happened because we would be coming close to having a king. That's what we would, this is what this is. When this veto is not overridden, Congress will effectively be saying, you know what? Yeah, Trump is basically a king, and we're okay with that. Uh, or as my daughter Grace uh, once described it. I am the leader. Do as I say. Yeah, that's where we are. We're a king. This country, the United States of America, formed directly in a revolution against the United Kingdom because they were a monarchy, we are now becoming a monarchy. Now, Obama, to be clear, he, he sowed some uh, important seeds in this direction. He, he paved that path, but now Trump is going right down that path a lot farther and with the help of alleged constitutional conservatives, and that's what's disgusting about it. And this goes to my overall largest fear of the Trump presidency. I have many concerns about the Trump presidency. But my greatest fear is this, and I've referenced this with regard to why I think Trump needs to be impeached at some point, just for symbolic purposes. And that is, and I I said this to Glenn Beck when I I did an interview with Glenn Beck very early on. Uh, I went down to Dallas to talk to him about another matter, and we did a series of interviews. But he and I did... (laughs) It's a shame that it's, I think it only exists on my DVR because they do, you know, the Blaze does a subscription uh, situation. But Glenn Beck and I did maybe the best interview I've ever been involved with in either direction. Uh, John Ziegler, I, I think he's fantastic. What a, what a interesting mind he has. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is, so he and I did this television interview for his Blaze network early on in the Trump administration where... I said, Glenn, look, I think Trump is a buffoon. I'm paraphrasing here. And he's going to do lots of things that are wrong and dangerous, and we'll see how bad it goes. Let's hope for the best. But what my greatest concern is that he is going to pave the way for someone in the future who's not a buffoon, who's a real potential tyrant, and who's going to use the, the destruction of our norms that Trump has already done for him to be able to plow right through. And there's not going to be any way to stop them. And I got to tell you, that portion of the Trump presidency has been worse than I ever imagined. And this is a classic example. When you're vetoing bills by Congress, your only veto is a bill by Congress to curtail your abuse of power, and constitutional conservatives are willing to go along with that, that is incredibly dangerous.
And that is a day we will rue in the future. And I hope the Mark Levins of the world are still around years from now when we are ruining that day. Because now you own it. You own this. Everything that happens from here on out, you own Mark Levin, Sean Hannity, Rush Limbaugh, Fox News Channel, all you frauds. Because when the Democrats take the White House and either they have enough of a majority to plow through whatever they want to plow through, or, they, or there's still enough uh, Republicans in the Senate to, to, to hold the line, at least temporarily, and they declare a national emergency over global warming or over gun control, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it then? You're going to own that. You will own that. And I'm going to, if God help us, I'm going to be around to make sure you own it. Because there needs to be some damn accountability for this. This is not a game. This is not about keeping your audience for the next however many months so that you can make a few extra dollars or not lose your gig. This is about the future of the country and what kind of a country we're going to be living in. We are headed towards a monarchy. And it's being done largely by the blocking, the blocking for Trump by supposed constitutional conservatives. And that needs to be uh, known by everybody. And, you know, on this front of Trump as fake tyrant, he, he, there was a quote that he gave to Breitbart this week, which I wish there was video of it. To my knowledge, there's not video of it. Because, you know, Trump does this game where whenever he says something that uh, is particularly controversial or his hand is caught in the cookie jar appealing to his cult too much, his reaction is, oh, (laughs) I was just joking. (laughs) Yeah, come on. Lighten up, people. Well, first of all, you're president of the United States. You're not supposed to be a comedian. Second of all, Trump hardly ever says anything that's legitimately funny. I mean, that to me is one of the strangest things about his personality. You would think that if anybody, I mean, Trump could ha- could get all sorts of laughs. And I remember thinking this during the debates with Hillary Clinton. Trump could get all sorts of legitimate laughs just by being a little self-deprecating because he's such an egomaniac and his persona is, persona is so large that there's ample opportunity. It's, I mean, you don't even have to be a pro to be funny. And he's incapable of it. So the idea that he's just joking, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't buy anymore. But here's the quote, and you can decide for yourself. He says, you know, the left plays a tougher game. It's very funny. I actually think that the people on the right are tougher, but they don't play it tougher, okay? I can tell you I have the support of the police, the support of the military, The support of the bikers for Trump. I have the tough people, but they don't play it tough until they go to a certain point. And then it would be very bad. Very bad. I am the leader. Do as I say. By the way, Grace was talking about Trump when she said that, and it was completely unprovoked. Um, But... (laughs) People, come on. Uh, look, I, I'm willing to, to say that maybe Trump was being a little facetious there, but that is, 
under the best circumstances, that is completely and totally inappropriate for a president of the United States to be making a threat like that. He's threatening his opposition with the police, the military, and bikers for Trump if they get out of line? Um, that's the kind of thing that a third world dictator does. I, I mean, a president of the United States bragging about having the support of the military. That's a banana republic thing. Hey, you can't go after me. I control the military. I, I mean, that's one step away from Gaddafi with his uh, multicolored, uh, gay-looking uh, military outfit. I mean, I, I mean that's, that's where we are, folks. And, you know, I asked on Twitter, and I don't know whether I'm giving him too much credit, but I'm wondering what if there's a strategy here. And if there is a strategy, I would, I'll go back to Grace. This is the terroristic child th- strategy. My, you know, my, my six-year-old is very good, whether she realizes it or not, and unfortunately I think she probably does, that if she really wants something, she can pitch a big enough fit where we just decide, you know what, this isn't worth the trouble, the hassle, the danger. <laughs> We're just going to give her what she wants to placate her because the alternative scenario just isn't worth it. It's not worth fighting this over because the potential damage is just too great. And I hate when we do that. We try hard not to do that, but we do do that from time to time. I think most parents probably do the same. Well, in a weird way, Trump appears to be creating the same kind of narrative potentially for the election next year. Again, this could be giving Trump too much credit, but I think that this could become a major issue. It is already being speculated that if Trump were to lose, that he would create some sort of disturbance or maybe try to hold on to power. I mean, things that were inconceivable in this country just a couple of years ago because Trump has destroyed all of our norms and desensitized us so much. Everything is in the realm of possibility. And so I could see Trump promoting this narrative that if I lose, boy, it's going to be bad. It's going to be real bad. I might not have control over it. I might not be able to control my people. And I, you know, I have the support of the military, the police, and these bikers for Trump. It could get ugly. Well, to a certain percentage of the population, they may look at that and go, geez, you know, I don't like Trump, but that sounds like it could be really ugly. Do I really, do we, do I really want this? Is it really worth it? Just give him what he wants. Just give him another four years. It'll actually be easier that way. It'll be safer that way. We'll be less dangerous that way. It's just not worth opposing him. I can totally see a certain percentage of the population feeling that way. That just it just isn't worth it. So let him win. It's effectively a literal terroristic threat, much like your child might make. And so... This, especially when you consider the, the veto issue, uh, this to me is, is not getting nearly enough attention, especially on the conservative side. And then that leads to me to something else that Trump did yes, 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 just yesterday, if I can use the English language uh, temporarily. Just yesterday, 
out of the blue, uh, Trump tweeted something that I had a huge problem with on multiple levels that, uh, once again, is being missed. Now, it got a lot of attention. This got a lot of attention, largely because the response by his target, the, the daughter of his target, his target was John McCain, Megan McCain responded in a fantastic way. And so, the, you know, the media loves a feud, especially between a president and the daughter of a fallen, now deceased, war hero. So there's no question it's getting a lot of attention, but it's not being perceived properly. That's almost always the case in our world, where the, the real story gets lost. But let me, let me share with you the, the tweet that Trump put out, and let me tell you why um, I think it's being misperceived and what the really outrageous elements of this are. Trump tweeted out of nowhere, spreading the fake and totally discredited dossier is, quote, unfortunately, a very dark stain against John McCain. Ken Starr. So he's quoting Ken Starr, the former special counsel who started the impeachment process of Bill Clinton. So he's quoting uh, Ken Starr about the so-called Steele dossier that McCain uh, was the one who, who allegedly spread this. And that, that's not necessarily true, but I'll get to that in a moment. Is unfortunately a very dark stain against John McCain, former independent counsel Ken Starr. He had far worse stains than this. This is Trump talking now, including thumbs down on repeal and replace after years of campaigning to repeal and replace exclamation part point. Now he's referring to Obamacare there. So let me just take several of these issues with this tweet. First of all, why? And I asked this in the last episode of the individual one podcast. Why is Donald Trump so obsessed with the steel dossier at this point? Nobody is talking. Nobody who matters is talking about the Steele dossier. Nobody. I, I mean, and especially after Michael Cohen has testified that he never went to Prague, most of the Steele dossier has been effectively discredited. Now, in the big picture, it's been right about a lot of things. But in the details, it has not been validated and in many ways has been discredited, specifically because of what I just said about Michael Cohen and the trip to Prague, and I don't believe there was ever a P-tape. I think there's a good explanation for how that story uh, became an urban legend, which we'll get into in a moment. But So the fact that Trump is so obsessed, and he has tweeted or retweeted things about the dossier numerous times just this week, that makes me suspicious. That makes me suspicious that there's something else coming. Because why... Does he need focus on the Steele dossier? In, in my opinion, it's because they need to connect the dossier to everything that Mueller finds. The, the, the whole idea that if the, you know, the seeds of the fruit, uh, the seeds of the tree are poison, then everything that, uh, that comes from the tree, all the fruit of the tree, is also poison. Now, that's not necessarily true, but that's what they're trying to build that argument. That, aha, the whole Russian investigation, the whole Mueller investigation is based upon the Steele dossier. Not true. But if it was, and if the dossier is somehow uh, evil or poison, whatever, then that makes everything that comes after it also evil or poison. Well, there's so many problems with that. I mean, I'm not even going to bother getting into all of them, except, first of all, the dossier was at first funded by a conservative group 
As I've said before, Christopher Steele, there's no evidence he had any idea who he was working for. And the most important thing about the Steele dossier is it never came out until after, well, after the election. So if this was some grand conspiracy to bring down Donald Trump, it was very, 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 very poorly executed. In fact, it never even came out until after the Electoral College voted. So I'm very suspicious as to why he is so obsessed with the Steele dossier. I also find it very peculiar that he's quoting Ken Starr. And you know, for those who are fans of my work, you may recall I confronted Ken Starr here in Southern California at the Reagan Library a few months ago about what I perceived to be his hypocrisy in having been in favor of Bill Clinton's impeachment, led that fight with uh, his special counsel investigation of Bill Clinton under far, far less serious circumstances than the current situation, which he appears to be against impeachment of Donald Trump. And it's not a coincidence. You know, he's now a uh, regular on Fox News. He's got a book out that he's promoting to Trump fans uh, his his whole relevance now is on the right wing. And if you want to stay relevant on the right wing, you've got to say nice things about Trump, and you certainly can't be in favor of his impeachment. So the hypocrisy by Ken Starr knows no bounds. So it, it's odd to me that Trump is quoting Ken Starr when <laughs> using the Ken Starr model, it ought to be very easy to impeach Donald Trump. Because based upon what Ken Starr thought were impeachable offenses, and I thought correctly so, with Bill Clinton, Donald Trump should have already been impeached long ago, for reasons I've explained uh, in the past. But then there's this issue of the Obamacare vote. And this is the kind of thing that really bugs me. And Trump is very good at this. Uh, because you know he, he knows he can lie and get away with it, and his cult's not going to call him on it, his media's not going to call him on it, and if you say something often enough, it becomes true. Trump is upset that he is not going to be able to fulfill his promise to repeal and replace Obamacare. Okay, fine. That should be on him. I mean, he had both houses of Congress. He had the opportunity to do something if he really wanted to. But he didn't really want to because it's messy, it's complicated, and you know he could never get past this this conflict with regard to preconditioning, pre conditions, pre existing conditions, and the mandate. I mean that's the the fundamental problem with the situation involving Obamacare. Everyone wants pre existing conditions to be covered, but conservatives don't want the mandate. Well. You can't do that. It doesn't work. It's like making water without, a, you know, hydrogen and oxygen. It's just not physically possible. And so it was too complex for Trump, and it was going to be too difficult, so he dropped it. So then he needs a scapegoat. And he has scapegoated John McCain. And it's very easy to scapegoat John McCain because, obviously, McCain is dead. And he is now, in my view, completely... Uh, misrepresenting what John McCain's vote was and the media is on the conservative side carrying his water for him and frankly even the liberal media is not correcting this because I guess it's too complex if, if it takes more than a tweet to explain you cannot win you cannot win the debate but let me explain this because I've done it in the past and this is so important John McCain's dramatic vote to end the effort to repeal Obamacare was not a vote for repeal and replace. It was not. 
It was a vote to end discussion about skinny repeal. It was a vote on what was called skinny repeal. Skinny repeal was basically bogus. Nobody wanted that to become law. Nobody did. Nobody wanted the skinny repeal. The only reason why it was happening was they couldn't come to a full repeal and replace option that enough Republicans were in favor of to keep the process going. So they came up with a stopgap. And this is where it gets a little bit complex, but bear with me, it's not really. So effectively what happened was there was this vote that was they, that if it didn't get enough yeses, if it didn't pass the Senate, then effectively the Obamacare debate was dead. And what they were going to do was pass what was the call, was I referred to as skinny repeal that nobody wanted passed, including Donald Trump. That's the part of this that really bugs me. Trump is now going after a dead man over a vote for a bill Trump himself did not want to become law, at least allegedly. So here's McCain's situation. McCain is dramatically brought in after having uh, brain surgery. And, uh, you know, it's all this drama. And he's the deciding vote. And let's be clear, McCain loves this because, you know, it's very dramatic and it goes into right into who he thinks of himself as being. And McCain's not a perfect guy. He's got a big ego. All right. But the reality is this. If he votes yes... And with Republicans controlling the Congress, it is more than conceivable that that skinny repeal is going to go back to the House and the House might decide this is the best they can do and we're going to pass it just so we can say we repealed Obamacare. And if that happens, it goes to Trump's desk. Now, a normal president, a normal president who's not a pathological liar, John McCain could have had a conversation with, which he did with Trump, And the president would say, look, John, I just need you to do this for procedural reasons. I am not going to sign this if it somehow gets to my desk. You don't need to worry about that. We just need to keep the process alive so we can figure out something better than what we have here. And under those circumstances, a president, probably not even from his own party, but certainly from his own party, McCain would have said, okay, I'm down with that. But with Trump, he's not. And the reason why he's not is he can't trust him. He can't trust Trump, especially when he might die. Okay? So Trump's the reason why McCain voted down skinny repeal. Because he couldn't trust a pathological liar. So stop it. Stop lying about a dead man. And, and you know, Megan McCain responded to this absurd tweet in a fantastic fashion. She wrote, no one will ever love you. This is to Trump. No one will ever love you the way they loved my father. I wish I had been given more Saturdays with him. This was yesterday, Saturday. Maybe spend yours with your family instead of on Twitter obsessing over mine. Here, here, Megan McCain. And uh, his obsession with the dossier and with McCain and lying about him over this vote to scapegoat him uh, is classic Trump. It's outrageous. It's disgusting. And, of course, no one on the right will call him out except 
for a few people like me. Now, as far as the dossier is concerned, I have referenced an interview I've done uh, just before we started the Individual One podcast several times uh, with Michael Isakoff, who's the writer, the author, co-author of Russian Roulette. And I wanted to play a, a pretty long clip from that interview that we did in December of 2018 for a couple of reasons. One, I've referenced it in the past because it's ironic that I get accused of Trump derangement syndrome when Donald Trump tweeted three times referencing my interview with Michael Isikoff in order to make his argument that the collusion uh, debate is, is effectively going to be decided in his favor. I mean, that's rather ironic, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, come on. If I had Trump derangement syndrome, why would I be promoting interviews and, and participating in interviews with other Trump critics who are defending Trump on the issue of Russian collusion? That doesn't make any sense. Correct. So uh, that's number one. But number two, one of the issues we deal with is, in fact, the dossier that Trump is for some reason obsessed with. So here is a key clip. And again, some things have happened since this interview. Like, for instance, Michael Cohen has publicly testified to Congress that he never went to Prague, which is referenced in this clip that you're going to hear. And uh, so we've learned some things since this interview. But by and large, it holds up awfully well. And here is Michael Isakoff on my previous podcast, The World According to Zig podcast, which I still do on a weekly basis in conjunction with the Individual One podcast. But this is Michael Isikoff back in December of 2018 talking about uh, the Steele dossier. All legitimate questions and how odd that, you know, what was the allegation that got everybody worked up about Trump and Russia from the get-go, and that was the sensational, still uncorroborated allegation in the Steele dossier that uh, uh, Trump had prostitutes in his hotel room uh, in Moscow urinating uh, on each other, and that the um, uh, and that the FSB had a tape of it. Right. So it was sexual compromise. <laughs> Right. that existed on Donald Trump uh, that really, uh, you know, kicked off the, uh, the Russia story into, uh, in, into but, outer orbit, shall we say, although there's plenty well, of other... Well, I want to talk Russia to you, I want to talk to you about that in a second. Talk about, but, but, but just, you know, the irony here is, you know, Steele may be right, but it wasn't the Kremlin had, had the sexual compromise on Donald Trump. It was the National Enquirer that had the but, sexual But, compromise. Michael, how do we know that the National Enquirer didn't sell that? Well, we don't, but uh, certainly one would want to hear, as I said before, to hear from David Pecker, and I think that, you know, he, he would be a prime witness for the... Well, Democrats in the, in the House of Representatives, when they take power in just a few short weeks, to call as a witness to answer that very question. Have you ever seen the National Enquirer do a cover story negative about Vladimir Putin? No, I, don't I, I have I not. Have. I have not either. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know that I'm a religious uh, reader of the National Enquirer. No. <laughs> okay, I, but, but I, may have, I may have missed a few. All right, well, let's get directly to your book, Russian Roulette. And you've already, I, I was going to get to this later, but since you mentioned it, I'll get to it right now. Uh, you mentioned the Steele dossier, which yeah. to me has been unfairly uh, derided, uh, especially by Trump fans, because a lot of the, uh, would you agree that a lot of what's in the, uh, the Steele dossier has been at least somewhat vindicated? Would you agree with that assessment? No. You would not? 
you know. Tell me why. Tell me why. I look. I think as we wrote in the book, and by the way, it's uh, the, the book is by myself and David Corn. Right. We wrote it together. Um, I think in broad strokes. Uh, Christopher Steele was clearly on to something uh, that there were uh, that there was a uh, a major uh, a, a Kremlin effort to interfere in our elections that there were that they were um, uh, trying to help Trump's campaign and that there were multiple contacts between uh, people in between various Russian figures. Uh, uh, close to the government and various people in the Trump campaign. That much, I think, has been established by the public record. When you actually get into the details of the Steele dossier, the specific allegations, um, you know, we have not seen the evidence to support them. And in fact, there's good grounds to think that um, some of the more sensational allegations uh, will never be proven and are likely false. That's so in- I, I think it's a, it's a mixed record at best at this point. Um, things could change. Mueller may yet produce evidence that changes this calculation, but based on the public record at this point, I have to say that most of the specific allegations uh, have not been borne out. That's interesting to hear you say that, Michael, because as I'm sure you're well aware, your book uh, was kind of used indirectly to try to validate the P-tape, uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, because yeah, I be- mean, I, I think we had some evidence in there of uh, an event or, or that may have inspired the P-tape, uh, and that was the uh, visit that Trump made with a number of uh, uh, of characters who later showed up in Moscow, specifically uh, Emin Aguilarov and Rob Goldstone, uh, to this raunchy Las Vegas nightclub where one of the regular acts was uh, a... Uh, a skit called Hot for Teacher, in which uh, dancers posing as college co-eds urinated right. on their, or simulated urinated right. on their professor, um, which struck me as uh, an odd coincidence at right. best. And I think that, the, you know, it is not implausible that uh, that event um, may have inspired... Uh, An urban legend. ...allegations uh, that... Uh, um, uh, that appeared in the Steele dossier, but it's not proof that the specific allegation in the Steele dossier uh, ever took place, much less that the Russians have a tape of it. Now, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Michael. And in fact, I, you're probably not aware. I, I wrote a column when your book came out saying that while a lot of people are using your book to show that the P-tape is real, I think it does the opposite. Because to me, you've just provided in your book, Russian Roulette, a perfectly logical explanation for how that becomes an urban legend, that those two stories get conflated, that that when those guys go back to Russia, this becomes part of the Trump narrative. Hey, we, we, we did this thing in Vegas and they were peeing on people. And, and then that somehow gets back to steel in the whisper down the lane phenomenon and and what we have here is an urban legend 
legend of two different things. By the way, Trump might have been with prostitutes in Moscow, and he might even been taped. <laughs> right, right. I would not rule anything out. I just, you know, as a journalist, I have to stick to what the evidence is. No, but is. I'm, I agree. To say people have made, you know, uh, uh, Herculean efforts to try to verify various aspects of the Steele dossier, and you know, like I say, when it comes to the granular particulars, I have not seen. Um, right. Uh, that evidence uh, pan out. I'll give you another one that I think is, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, on point, and I can uh, uh, look at, you know, more recent public record, and that is the the uh, the claim that Michael Cohen uh, flew to Prague to meet with uh, Russian uh, various. Kremlin figures to discuss coordination between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin. Uh, now, uh, Michael Cohen adamantly denied that uh, in his congressional testimony. He couldn't have been more emphatic about that point. Um, Michael Cohen had to plead to lying to Congress about uh, his account of the Moscow, uh, the Trump Tower Moscow project, which I thought actually was very serious, and we can, we can discuss yes. that, um, because that took place during the pendency of the campaign, yep. um, and uh, it was something that was, con- that, that, that was highly relevant information that was concealed from the voters uh, uh, during, the, um, during the 2016 campaign. Um, he wasn't charged with lying about his denials about ever flying to Prague to meet with Russian figures. You know, after you get through the P tape, the Michael Cohen uh, allegation in the Steele dossier, Correct. you know, may be the next most important one. Yes, because there's somebody very close to Donald Trump who's directly meeting with Russian figures about co- having, having discussions about coordination between collusion, as it were, between right. the the Russians and the Trump campaign. But you know, if why wasn't he charged with lying about it if that's what he did? That would have been a, as, as, as serious a lie as the lie he told about the Trump Tower Moscow project. Michael, I, I could um, not agree with you more. I think that's an outstanding point and one that I have been uh, telling people to, to think about. Why, you know, If there was collusion, Cohen would, uh, would have been uh, at least uh, knowledgeable of it. So why is Cohen not uh, blabbing about this? now that he, he uh, you know, clearly right. he's in the free now there is but is there an argument i don't know the answer to this is there an argument because i've had people say this in response well this is stuff that Mueller would want him to remain silent about is there is there any credibility to that idea well look uh, all i can say is usually what you would do if he was a crucial witness for Mueller in you know what is clearly the most important federal investigation going on right now but uh, you would not bring, uh, you would not uh, uh, go to sentencing on that witness. What you do is hold off sentencing until you've gotten full cooperation from that witness, and you've, whatever other trials or testimony you're going to bring, whatever cases you're going to bring against others, you hold off sentencing your crucial witness until after they've delivered the testimony that you want at trial or wherever you want it. Now, uh, you know, what that says to me is that they're not using Michael Cohen 
for a Mueller isn't for another case because if they were, they wouldn't have allowed the sentencing to go forward. Interesting. Um, so uh, you know, I, there are you know there are things blocked out in the sentencing, blocked out in the sentencing Cohen sentencing memo. It's always possible that there's cards Mueller's got to play that we haven't seen. But I do think it's odd right. that two. Two witnesses, two very important witnesses, Michael Cohen and Michael Flynn, are going to sentencing um, without us seeing them in federal court testifying against somebody else, because normally that wouldn't happen. That's an incredibly important and interesting point. And but although, you know, let, let's be clear, Michael Cohen did uh, tweet a photo of his uh, passport. Uh, the, you know, closed passport. So clearly, that's proof enough that he never went to Prague. Um, well, I, you know, look, there's always, you know, people <laughs> have suggested that there were, you know, other ways around it. He could, he did fly to Italy, uh, you know, while in Italy. Could right. he, uh, you know, no, I, I was joking because it was the outside of the passport. Is the Czech Republic? I, I mean, I, you know, look, I, my, what I'm, what I'm resting my, you know, tentative conclusion on this point is the uh, uh, the evidence we've seen from Mueller and, you know, more notably, the lack of evidence we've seen from Mueller that go directly to the collusion allegations involving Cohen. I, I agree with that, and that leads me to Michael Flynn, because I am equally, if not more so, confused. And again, uh, to be clear, I, and it sounds like you're in the same place, I'm not convinced that there was quote-unquote collusion, depending on how you define that. Uh, there was certainly a lot of highly inappropriate uh, contacts and a lot of smoke that I'd like to find out more about. But well, yeah. let's let's pretend, see, one of the things I'm having trouble wrapping my brain around, and maybe you can help me, is if there was any sort of actual collusion or conspiracy to collude, whatever you want to call it, Michael Flynn, you would think, would be at the heart of it. I mean, here's a guy who was literally on the payroll of the Russian government during the campaign, went to Russia, sat with Vladimir Putin at a gala, uh, you know, was in the in the position to be able to make things happen during, both during the campaign and during the transition, which is, you know, effectively when it when ended up getting uh, him convicted because of lies that he told about his conversation with the Russian ambassador uh, during the transition. But But here's the thing. He's getting no jail time, it looks like. Now, it's hard for me to wrap my brain around, Michael, how it is that uh, if there was collusion, uh, that Michael Flynn wouldn't be a part of it. And if he was a part of it, how does he get away with no jail time? I, I, can't, I can't square uh, I that circle. I think you're asking very on-point questions. I think those are uh, exactly the same questions I had in my mind. Um, I also, when I saw the Flynn sentencing memo, uh, I also have read that memo about 15 times. And if you read it closely, what you see is that Michael Flynn gave substantial assistance in a case that is an open investigation, but it's not part of Mueller's investigation. It's about something else. It could have involved the Turkish lobbying efforts. It could have involved some business deals in the Middle East. We don't know. Um, but we do know it's not part of the Mueller investigation. When you look at what the sentencing memo says about the uh, testimony he provided on the core Russia investigation, 
they use words like useful and relevant and assisted. They do not say substantial cooperation. Substantial cooperation are the magic words you use as a prosecutor, prosecutor when you're telling the judge, this guy, this defendant, gave us information, testimony, that we can use to make cases against somebody else, that we can put somebody else in prison. So he did that, but not in the core Russia investigation. So to me, that leaps out and is significant. Right. Um, you know, and then, and then, and then, not heard from Michael Cohen's, I'm, I'm sorry, from Michael Flynn's full account. We still don't know why he lied about his conversations with uh, Ambassador Kislyak. And, you know, right. that's a big question mark in my mind. One would want to hear right. from Michael Flynn right. about. But I'm just saying, at the end of the day, if you read the Mueller memo, sentencing memo, closely, it doesn't get you to where a lot of people would like it to be. Once again, that was Michael Isakoff from December of 2018. You can find that entire interview, by the way, at freespeechbroadcasting.com. It got a lot of attention because uh, Trump tweeted about it not once, not twice, but uh, three times. And that's really where I am on this entire issue of Russian collusion at this point. I do not believe it's going to be proven. I'm still open-minded. I do not believe it's going to be proven, and I'm not 100% sure it ever even happened. And a lot of people are going to have a lot of eggs on their faces, and I I honestly think Trump's going to benefit. Because if it was not for the Mueller investigation and the sky-high expectations, I think he might have already been impeached, based purely on just what we already know from the Michael Cohen situation and, as I've mentioned numerous times before, his consistent violation of the emoluments clause. Well, that'll do it for uh, this edition of the uh, Individual One podcast. As always, we finish with uh, an update on the percentages of Trump not finishing his first term in office and being reelected. And frankly, I, I didn't see anything this week that would dramatically alter either of those numbers. So we're going to keep those percentages at uh, just 6% chance that Trump is removed from office or does not finish his first term in office, and a 40% chance that he ends up getting reelected. Until uh, next time, which will be Wednesday morning, Los Angeles, California time. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to, rate, review, and share this podcast via social media. And uh, follow us on Twitter at Individual1Pod. That's Individual, the number one pod. My name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.